This week we have the great pleasure of closing our, uh, our series that we've been doing for these uh, five weeks called A Praying People. We've looked at multiple aspects of what it means to be a praying people. We've uh, been challenged to see the way we pray in different uh, aspects, to look at it from a different perspective and to maybe even grow in depth in the way that we approach God as a praying people. Today we uh, close uh, talking about shameless prayer. And as we close this week, that tells us that there's something new next week. And so just to give you the heads up, next week we'll start a brand new series called This is Love. And what we're going to do is for four weeks running up to Easter, we're going to be looking um, at the idea of love as seen through John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. So what would it look like to spend four weeks on just that one sort of little passage? And we could probably spend four years on it, uh, knowing how much is wrapped up in that. But we're going to spend four weeks just going into what does is, what is God's love really look like? And so we're going to dive deep on one thing around the Easter season and really look at what love means. Which means this week we finish prayer with, like I said, shameless prayer. Shamelessness is mentioned in the Bible a couple times. David was shameless before the Lord. Usually when we think of shameless prayer, uh, we actually think of the size of the ask. We think, you know, if we're really going to be shameless, we're going to ask for the moon and the stars and just see what happens. And what we're going to see today is that shameless prayer is not about praying for bigger things, but praying from a smaller place. So to get there, we're going to go to Luke uh, chapter 11. Chapter 11 in Luke verse 5, and I'm going to read out of the New Living Translation. Usually I read out of the English Standard Version, not that it uh, totally matters either way or not that you were all that curious. But Scripture is beautiful and that all these different translations we have provide uh, different aspects and different strengths and weaknesses. And so today I think we need to be a little bit more, uh, the NLT is a little better to understand. It's a little easier to to read through. So we're going to read it through here and see if this helps us. It says in uh, verse 5, Then, teaching them more about prayer, he, Jesus, used this story. He said, Suppose you went to a friend's house at midnight, wanting to borrow three loaves of bread. You say to him, A friend of mine has just arrived for a visit, and I have nothing for him to eat. And suppose he calls out from his bedroom, Don't bother me, the door is locked. It's locked for the night, and my family and I are all in bed. I can't help you. I tell you this, though, he won't do it for friendship's sake, but if you keep knocking long enough, he will get up and give you whatever you need because of your shameless persistence. Verse 9. And so I tell you, keep on asking and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives. Everyone who seeks finds. And everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. You fathers, if your children ask for a fish, do you give them a snake instead? If they ask for an egg, do you give them a scorpion? Of course not. So if You sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So in Luke 11, where we're picking up the story, Jesus has just taught the Lord's Prayer. He's just taught them how to pray. And so then he says, now now in this manner, now that you know kind of the, the rubric for what it means to pray, how to approach the Father, now consider this. And so he starts out with this idea of, he's at a, what, what if you were at a friend's house? What if you came to visit a friend? And he says at midnight, suppose you went to a friend's house at midnight. And we need cultural context for this to understand just kind of how shameless this is. Midnight doesn't mean so much to some of you. You're like, I'm up at midnight every night. What's the big deal? Think about in a Jewish context, this is not um, a suburban American house. So this is a one-room house, most likely. And when he said, me and my family are all in bed, the odds are they were all in bed together because there was one bed. There was one mat on the floor, and they all slept on it. There's middle of the night in this sense. There's no electricity. The sun's been down for hours. And so it's the middle of blackest night. 
and someone comes and starts banging on the door. This is not a, a late night snack. So in our, um, in our culture, it'd be like 3 a.m. more likely. And this is not something, do you, do you think someone could bang on your door at 3 a.m. and say, I'm really hungry, can you help me? And your amygdala would shoot off alarm signals everywhere, right? You would just be immediately, some of you had the doorbell that has the camera on it, you'd be checking that thing, and the wife's calling the police, and you know, if you have weapons in the home, they're all getting ready, and your nunchucks are out, or whatever you got. 3 a.m. is not a good time to hear loud banging on the door. And that's what's happening. If you did answer the door, you would expect there to be an emergency. Some neighbor needs something, the house is on fire, what is it? To which the person at your door says, it's, um, feel a little snackish, and I just don't have anything in the cupboard, can you help me? To which you would say, this is not the time for that. It's a shameless persistence, it says in verse 8. When you look those words up and you get a sense for biblically what that's meaning, uh, discourtesy comes up. Discourtesy. Brazen audacity. Jesus is using this to instruct us in how to pray. Jesus says, be shameless to the point of being bothersome. He's essentially saying, bother God with your requests. What a, what a strange thing to read in your scripture that, that Jesus comes and says, what I want you to do, the way I want you to pray, and what we expect as religious people at times, is we expect there to be some, some order of reverence and some order of, of ritual. And what he says is, come like someone in the middle of the night banging on the door, come and bother God. And people in the room say, well, maybe it, maybe it doesn't quite mean that. Jesus again, Luke 18, further down in the story. It says, one day Jesus told his disciples a story to show that they should always pray and never get up, give up. Verse 2, there was a judge in a certain city, and he said, uh, judge in a certain city who neither feared God nor cared about people. Okay, so the judge doesn't fear God, doesn't care about people. A widow of that city came to him repeatedly, saying, give me justice in this dispute with my enemy. The judge ignored her for a while, but finally he said to himself, I don't fear God or care for people. But... This woman is driving me crazy. I'm going to see that she gets justice because she is wearing me out with her constant requests. Then the Lord said, learn a lesson from the unjust judge. Even he rendered a just decision in the end. So don't you think that God will surely give justice to his chosen people who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will grant them justice quickly. The parables tend to answer a singular question. They're multifaceted, so you can turn it a little ways and see a different answer in there, but the parables are often designed to answer a singular question. And these two both have this question being asked, how do we present our prayers? You've told us how to address God, but how do we, how do we actually present our prayers? What does this mean? And what's unique to Christianity is there's no other world religion that would say, pester God, bother God, shamelessly, discourteously beg God. It's almost that time of year. Spring break is here. I mean, summer's right around the corner. People are starting to get excited. We thought it was spring last week. Did you notice this? Plants started popping up in the, in the flower beds in the front yard, and then uh, the next morning they were covered in snow, and we thought, this is not, this is not normal. We've been uh, assured that it is normal, and yet we're, we're kind of getting, we're getting into that summer is coming mode. You start planning the road trip. Everybody who's been on a road trip with kids knows everybody expects the same thing. You get about 15 minutes out the, out the door, you're out of the garage, you're packed, the ice chest is ready, the suitcases are ready, everybody's buckled in. These days, everybody has their device and their headphones, just nobody talk, let's get there. 15 minutes in, somebody quietly will pull their headphones off and they will ask a singular question that will happen for the rest of the trip. 
Are we there yet? And the first time that a child asks a parent this, no matter where you are on the vacation and where you are on the trip, um, the parent just tends to ignore. You kind of shake it off a little bit. You're like, that was, you know, I'm not going to let that get to me. Not this time. To which they ask again. I said, are we there yet? And over and over again. And after you say, no, we're not there yet. It's going to be a while. Just, Just read your book or just do whatever you're doing. Ten minutes later, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Eventually, we explode. Right? Eventually, as a parent, you're like, okay, I just can't handle this anymore. I'm going to pull this car. You know, you start threatening things. I'm going to pull this car over. We're turning around. We're going home. It's a thing. Like, but, but what does that are we there yet get? That pestering gets a response eventually. The pestering gets me to turn around and figure something out. Let me draw you a map. Here is a watch. Like, let me let you figure out how this is going to work, because this is the next eight hours of my life, and I'm not going to do it with this question. We get into this, and this is what Jesus says to do to God. Jesus says, come to God, an all-powerful, omnipotent being. And when Jesus taught us how to pray, he said, call him Dad, our Father. This is hugely important. This level of familiarity instructs us in how to see shameless prayer. Because praying shamelessly, as Jesus instructed, is less about the praying itself and more about the person doing the praying. What does this mean? Well, before we get to the answer to that, we have to recognize that prayer is, is fundamental to who we are, and prayer is fundamental to our, um, our humanity. It's the way we were designed. And so often when we, as believers, uh, deal with folks that are skeptical, deal with folks that are uh, cynical about what this faith thing is, we struggle to even kind of articulate why it is we pray and what that's about. People will say, well, you know, I don't believe in that, so I don't, I don't go down that road. And when we deal with non-believers, it can be really challenging to, to walk through some of those things. And what I've found to be over the years is that prayer is actually a reflexive thing in all humanity. People pray in times of need. Profound atheists pray in times of need. I've been called, I can't tell you how many times, called, tapped on the shoulder, pulled aside in grocery stores, through email, in various ways by people who have found out in one way or another that I'm a clergy. And they will say, will you pray for me? Because you obviously like have some sort of hotline to God. So you seem to know him. And I'll say, well, why don't you? Well, I don't really believe in that stuff, but you, and none of it makes sense, right? I don't believe in it, but you seem to. So maybe if you try it, he'll listen to you. The old phrase, there's no atheists in foxholes. That when we're in the moments of great desperation, people pray. I think about it this way, because the response to that is often like, well, you know, I was desperate, so I'll try anything, because when you're desperate, you just try whatever. You throw it against the wall and see if it sticks. And I don't actually buy that argument when it comes to uh, non-believers who find themselves praying in moments of desperation. I've never been uh, in crisis with someone or, or seen someone going through something difficult and, and the easiest thing would be for them to fly away. I've never seen someone put their arms up and concentrate real hard and try to fly. All of us would agree that humans don't have the ability to just fly on the spot, right? We would all say we don't believe that. And yet no one tries it in moments of great desperation. Why? It's not real. It's not happening. But in great desperation, humanity, all across every culture, all of humanity turns to a god. All of humanity seeks a higher power. All of humanity seeks some divine presence. All of humanity seeks help or assistance from something beyond themselves. Desperation doesn't cause us to grasp for fantasy. Desperation is the truest peak into our souls. 
when our defenses are down, when we are at our most vulnerable, when we are not thinking anymore, but simply reacting, that's when we're shown to be who we really are. Desperation in this sense, as we're talking about prayer, desperation is like a flood. You see pictures after a great flood goes through somewhere or after a tsunami hits an area. The East Coast this weekend is getting just crushed by these floods. This, the ocean water is coming up into land and then it's ripping everything back out as it leaves. When you survey one of these areas, what you find is it washes out all of the built-up layers of society. And what lays bare is just the foundation. So if you go through an area that's just been ravaged by flooding, what you often find is simply foundations of houses. You don't see the malls, you don't see the roofs, you just see concrete on the ground. This is the picture. Desperation forces us to confront our core selves rather than relying on our constructed self. So in our society, what we have is a constructed self. Each of us, in our own way, through culture and through upbringing and through our own kind of learning and understanding, we construct a version of ourselves for the outside. And what desperation does, what need does, what crisis does, is it brings a flood of reality into our lives. And what's left, the thing that we're left with, is the reality. It's the core of who we are. And so desperation exposes what we're really like and where the foundation of our identity really lies which is to say that we are all hardwired to seek a higher power. Tim Keller says it's like this. If you, if you thought you had mice in your basement, some of you think you have mice in your basement now and you're thinking you haven't checked the traps in a while. Well, if you want to find the mice in your basement, you don't stomp down the stairs, flip on the lights, and, and hope to see one. If you want to find the mice in your basement, what you have to do is surprise them. You sit in the corner quietly and you flip the lights on at the last second when you hear the squeaking happen, then you hope to see the scurrying and the evidence of something that's really there. Crisis and desperation do that in our souls. They show us, they reveal what's really there. Crisis and desperation are reliable in that way, that they actually expose who we are and what's really happening within us. Not only that, prayer reveals what's in our hearts. So if you did a prayer audit and you had to, Ask God, you know, hey, can you give back to me some of my prayers so, just so I can audit them and see what I'm actually praying for? Do you pray for love or money or health or safety or whatever it is? That reveals your hopes and fears. What you pray for reveals your hopes and fears. If you pray for health, perhaps illness is a great fear. If you pray for love, maybe loneliness is the fear. We have them all in there. But when you think about what you pray for, you can audit that and figure out what you fear on the back end. Prayer reveals our humanity and our deep down knowledge that we need something greater. So Jesus tells us to pray shamelessly. And if we all pray, then what does it mean to pray shamelessly? And why don't we? Why don't we often pray like Jesus taught? Does anybody think it's disrespectful? Like when you think about pestering God, bothering God, begging, do you feel on some level? Because as a parent, what I do is I'm projecting now onto God my own experience. As a parent, I begin to feel disrespected when my kids continue to bother me and beg me and pester me. Like, man, no means no. And so what I've done at times in my life is I project that onto God and I go, well, he must feel that this is disrespectful that I keep asking for the thing that obviously isn't coming. And yet Jesus isn't saying that. Jesus says, beg and pester and bother. What Jesus is ultimately saying is you need to adopt a posture before God that says the only way this is getting done is for you to show up and do it. 
praying shamelessly as Jesus instructed is less about the praying and more about the person doing the praying. Which is to say, I don't pray shamelessly when I think I can get it done myself. The opposite of shameless is prideful. We pray mundane prayers. Most of us, most of the time. We pray mundane prayers because we think we can work out the complicated stuff on our own. Or, somewhere within us, we doubt that God really wants to be involved at that level. And so we ask for the easy things, the big things that can't be judged or measured. Maybe we're afraid of rejection, and so we don't ask for something that can have a no to it. We just ask for kind of like generalized ideas. We pray mundane prayers because we think we can work out the complicated stuff for ourselves. And it's only in total exhaustion for most believers, for most people I see, most people come in my office, most people I talk to and ask and are really honest about it. Only in total exhaustion do we really begin to pray the shameless prayers like Christ instructed. Which is to say, only in the place where we've exhausted our ability to do it ourselves do we finally say, okay, God, it's your turn. I can't do it. And think of your life in the places where you've gotten to that point. Usually it's in those big areas big illness areas, big relationship areas, big issues with children or parents. Only when we get to the place where we realize we have zero control over the outcome do we then turn to God and say, okay, your turn. I did my best. And what we realize when we see the world this way, we begin to take stock of who we are and how we pray. We realize that we often have powerless prayers. That you and I pray powerless things every day. And powerless prayers are the result of prideful people. Because prideful people, and when we're prideful, I can do it myself. I'll get it done myself. I'll work on it myself. I'll push it through myself. I can do this. And so the prayers are the crumbs at the, at the leftovers. Uh, well, oh yeah, and God, thanks for some stuff. I don't know. I want to make sure I maintain relationship, but I got this. I got the main stuff. You just, you're good. I'm going, to, I'm going to keep talking, but I don't want to let you into the big stuff. And so we end up with these powerless prayers as a result of our own pride. When our lives are me, 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 me. And then only when we've run out of our own abilities and options, we go, okay, fine, uh, you, you can help. Jesus says, come like a child. Call him Dad. The great scandal of this phrase when he says, Abba, Father. The great scandal being that the Jewish people still to this day, you find Orthodox Jews, they won't even write the name of God because it's so, it's so holy, it's so precious. And so you'll get an email from an Orthodox rabbi and it says, you know, we, we pray to G-D for you. Because I can't even write the name of God, it's so holy. Jesus is in that culture where we don't even use the, the, the name of the Lord. We had to make up a, another name with some Yahweh. We sing that song. That, that's a word created because the name of God is too holy to speak. Jesus comes to that culture and says, call him dad. And what that is, is not simply an invitation to familiarity, an invitation to relationship. That's an indicator to us that we have to move out of this formal 
zone where we're doing religious ritual things and we have to move into an area of shameless childlike innocence before the father not only is his name able to be said he wants you to know him personally he wants you to call on him personally and he wants you to come to him with all the little things think about the things that my children come to me with You're a sick kid in the middle of the night. You go to your parents. You go to mom. You go to dad. You go to grandma. Whether your dad's a pastor or the president of the United States, you get access. I heard a preacher once say, do you know the only people who have access to the president at 3 a.m. are his kids. And the kids barge in at 3 a.m. And that's, that's how parent and child, that's how you relate. Can't reach your cough drops? Yeah, okay, I can help. You got a headache and it has a child-proof lid? All right, I can get some medicine for you. You have a stomach ache? All right, we'll figure something out. What do kids do? Middle of the night, they pester. Uh, you can ask my wife uh, for a confirmation of this, but I'm occasionally uh, something of a comatose sleeper. I'm one of those people that uh, I sleep hard and I dream out loud at times. And um, while that doesn't do much for my spouse's ability to sleep, it's really great for me. And there will be times, and this happens probably every other time we have a kid come into our, our bedroom at night, that they will ask me something, and I'm in the middle of who knows where, and I will give them an answer that makes absolutely no sense. Dad, my stomach hurts. I think I'm going to throw up. And I'll go, that's so great. So just go back to bed and have some water. Have some water. So they're like sort of conscious thoughts. I'm giving an answer to something, just not at all what I'm being asked. Or, you know, I have growing pains. You know, when kids come in with growing pains and their legs are hurting, their shins are aching and everything's like the world is ending over these pains in my leg. And I'll be like, that's going to be okay. Why don't you just go lay in the basement? And they'll be like, what? What does that even mean? And eventually I'll, I'll say it again or I'll come up with some other weird answer. And I'm just trying to get rid of the kid in my, in my sleep state. And eventually she'll look over and she'll like poke me and she'll be like, no, you need to get her medicine, fool. Oh, well, what is she asking for? Her legs hurt. What is in the basement? I don't know what's in the basement. I just, it's just the first thing that came to mind. And so what I end up doing is, is I have to be pestered. And I am not God, and this is not an exact uh, perfect analogy where you go, oh, so God's kind of a comatose God. And so that, no, it's not that. Don't, do, don't say what I didn't say. After the third or fourth time, the point is I get up. No, no, my, no, my legs hurt. Oh. Eventually, I get up and I, and I fix it. We get the medicine or we do a leg rub or we, whatever. This is the position that Jesus says we are to take before the Father. The posture of a child tugging on the sleeve of a parent. When you listen to children pray, they pray aggressively and trustingly. Because they haven't lived long enough to start projecting their limitations on God. The beauty of the way children pray is that they haven't lived long enough to begin projecting their limitations on God like we do. They still believe that God can do anything. You know, as if God had created the universe with a word. As if God had sent his son to come and save humanity. As if God had some answers to things. They, they still pray that way. 
we listen to our kids pray, and I tear up every time going, I wish I had faith like that. When someone's sick, they don't, they don't have to qualify their prayers with, you know, Lord, we know that you're mysterious, and if it's your will, and I mean, those are things we learn as we go, that sometimes it doesn't work out the way we want it to, and my kids just go, God, you can heal them. You got this. Kids don't yet live in a construct that says it's, it's up to them. Because they don't heal themselves or feed themselves or care for themselves. So they rely on others to do it. And so it's natural for a child with a childlike posture to think that others are responsible for those things. So for us, we have to undo the construct that we're really in control. We have to undo the construct that we're really the ones that are responsible for our feeding and our care and our health. Well, ultimately, to have a childlike posture, to have shameless prayer, we have to be able to come to God first to go, I can't do it. And I never could. Shamelessness shows us that we have an unconditional access to the Father. If a neighbor were in my bedroom tugging on my sleeve at 3 a.m., we'd have trouble, right? If a neighbor is in your bedroom tugging on your sleeve at 3 a.m., how are you going to react to that? Not good. Someone's going to the hospital, and it's not going to end well. If your child's tugging on your sleeve, it's totally different. We cannot be too, brow- too proud to beg and bother God. Shameless prayer teaches us what it means to be a Christian. Because shameless prayer is not about praying for bigger things, but from a smaller place. It isn't about cleaning ourselves up and doing our best and trying really hard. That's what an employee does. Religion uses employee language. I make myself presentable so as to earn my spot at the table and maybe even a bonus at the end of the year. That's employee language. Christianity uses child's language, which is saying something more like, regardless of what I did, God makes a place for me at the table and gives me unconditional access to grace and gifts I didn't earn. My kids don't earn their meal at night. They don't earn the comforter they sleep under. They don't earn the electricity being paid. They don't earn it. They're gifted it. Religion says I make it to heaven because I worked hard, like some sort of eternal 401k that we contribute to along the way. And if we just put enough in, then there'll be something to draw on when the time comes. Christianity says I make it to heaven because Christ took my place and I get counted in his perfection. Christianity is like an eternal lottery, only if you didn't buy a ticket and you still won. We either relate to God as a loving father who adopted us unconditionally and gives us total access, or we relate to God as a boss who expects labor in return for reward. And when we're prideful, we're, we reach God and we treat God as if he is the boss. And this is really determined by our pride. Are we convinced of our own supremacy or not? Will we be a people of childlike faith, believing that God can do all things and we need him to actually do all things? Because ultimately, relatively speaking, we're sort of kids trying to get the childproof cap off the medicine, if we think about it. Our prayers show us which one it is. Your prayer is your diagnostic. Which one am I? Am I a prideful person praying mundane things, or am I a childlike prayer? Am I shameless enough to ask God for these things? Are your prayers formal and anxious? 
Like when you ask for a raise at work. Hope they receive this well. Do you only see God in exhausted desperation after you've gone through all the ways that you could fix it and then I guess we'll give it to him as a last resort? When you don't get the answer you desired, do you wonder what you did wrong? I think the idea of shameless prayer, and I hope we hear this, is that we can seek God with reverence and familiarity. God intends good for his children an egg, not a scorpion, as Jesus said. The proof of this is Jesus. Jesus is the standing living proof as he's teaching this to people. He is standing there about to become the living proof for them. If you ask for something good, don't you expect that God will give you something good? And what they don't know yet, his audience doesn't know yet, is he is the ultimate gift to being given. He is the ultimate answer to prayer they haven't known to pray yet. Jesus is the proof that God knows what we need before we do, and he will stop at nothing to make us whole. Scripture says, he who did not withhold his only son, what else would he withhold from us for our good? What would he deny you that you might need? What would he stop at to see you whole and healthy and thriving? This is a God who gave his son first before we knew and acknowledged the need. So may we be a people who are unafraid to pray for the little things and big things. But may we do it from a smaller place. May we do it as children tugging on the sleeve of a father. May we do it as children who realize at the end of the day, we can't get the cap off the medicine, much less run our lives. And that isn't to say that we are nothing and should stop and should just be in the fetal position and give up and be helpless. That is to say that God supplies the power and God supplies the purpose and God supplies our strength and God supplies our courage. And so as we go throughout this world, we go in not with childlike helplessness, but with God-sized empowerment. That there is nothing that we cannot do, there is nothing we cannot conquer, there is nothing we cannot uh, take and overtake, there is no culture we can't turn around, there is no... We can do these things, but we don't do it in our strength. We do it only in the strength of one who sent Christ to be our healer, who sent Christ to be our hope, and who sends Christ to remind us on a daily basis, come to God as children, shamelessly. And when we bring God our requests, when we bring God our hearts, when we bring God our sorrows, when we bring God our lives, he is faithful, and he is good, and he is just And he's saying, watch what I will do. I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to take uh, communion. And today we get to come to the table with the bread and the cup. And we have time to really confront. To confront God's proactive love. I want you to see communion as that today. I want to confront the proactive love of God. And when we pull the bread off the plate, it represents that God was proactively loving us.